Welcome back to the program. Why is it that the pains of rejection in high school often stay with us for life? Not being asked to the prom, not making the team, or that first broken heart all seem to imprint us in ways that scar us forever. And what's the connection between those experiences and our seemingly insatiable appetite for social networks? In fact, as we look at the evolution of technology, from cave paintings to the printing press to the telephone to Facebook and Twitter, all are advancing the efforts for us to connect. Maybe we need to reassess Maslow's hierarchy of needs in a way that makes social connection just as important as food, clothing, and shelter. My guest today, Matthew Lieberman, has been looking at these issues and has come to some very powerful conclusions. Matthew Lieberman is a professor in the Department of Psychology, Psychiatry, and Behavioral Science at the University of California, Los Angeles. He's a founding editor of the journal Social, Cognitive, and Effective Neuroscience. He is one of the foremost authorities in the world on the study of social neuroscience, and he's the author of a new book entitled Social. It is my pleasure to welcome Matthew Lieberman to the program today. Matthew, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, I'm so happy to be with you. Great to have you here. To what extent is it our memory of these events that impact us over the long run versus the actual pain that we experience from these kind of negative events that we might have had in high school or or at various points in our lives? Right. Well, I think these two things are are intertwined. So I think it is uh, the strength of the, the pain and the distress that pain causes us in the moment that allows these negative social experiences to impact us for days, weeks, or even years. You can look back on some uh, negative social experience from childhood now, and we can unfortunately fully relive that negative experience where it can really cause distress now, but I think that's tied into the way uh, we're built to experience those things as painful in the first place. In that respect, it is arguably different than other kinds of physical pain that we feel because oftentimes we we are forced to forget those the nature of that physical pain. I mean, women talk about forgetting the pain of childbirth. We forget the pain right. of accidents when we get back in the car, perhaps, after a car accident. That kind of pain we forget, this kind of psychic pain stays with us. It does, and I think that's because uh, the social or emotional pain uh, involves us understanding what other people think about us, uh, and we can always do that again. So we can always recreate that sense of, geez, this person you know, left me out or didn't like me or rejected me, um, and we can re-experience that. Whereas physical pain really requires the input to our body for us to feel it, and we're not really built to be able to recreate that on our own. How much of what we know and what research tells us, how much of that pain that we remember from those social-emotional events, how much of it is real and how much of it has become kind of mentally apocryphal over time? Well, I think when you're talking about anything in psychology, uh, real is a funny word. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think that the pain um, is just as real. So there are studies showing that when you remember the pain of some past social event, uh, you're activating, reactivating the same neural circuits that are involved in feeling pain in the first place. Uh, so I think it's it's certainly genuine from the sense of human experience. Uh, I think, though, it's it's hard to actually 
put uh, a fine point on exactly what it means to say uh, pain is real or not real. All pain uh, is in the mind, whether it's physical pain or social pain or any other kind of pain. It's really dependent on what our brain is expecting, how those expectations are violated, and things along those lines. And one of the things that you talk about is the degree to which even something like Tylenol in some ways helps mitigate this kind of social-emotional pain. Yeah, this was one of the most surprising findings. So we had shown that uh, when you experience social pain, uh, your brain produces roughly the same activity it would when you were experiencing physical pain. And so uh, a natural next step, which you know, it's hard to really believe, is that if this is the case, then perhaps a painkiller like Tylenol would actually not only mitigate your headache, but your heartache too. And uh, and that's you know that's exactly what showed up uh, in the data. The the neural responses quieted down to social pain, uh, and people self-report uh, their feelings of rejection were diminished uh, after they had been taking Tylenol. And what do we think is at the heart of that from a physiological perspective? Is it some kind of inflammatory response, or is there something else going on? We don't know. Tylenol, uh, actually, its its neural basis has not been studied really closely, but the understanding of Tylenol is that it's actually acting at the level of the brain as opposed to uh, acting as an anti-inflammatory out in the sort of body. So that's why it was thought that it would work on both social and physical pain, is that its, its effects seem to focus on changing neural responses rather than bodily processes. And, of course, even more than physical pain, these are the kind of pains that that people try and self-medicate through the use of drugs and alcohol. Yeah, they are. Um, And, and, you know, I think it's very important to caution anyone who's listening not to try to use Tylenol to uh, medicate uh, any of these things. We, you know, the research was done in a tightly controlled experimental context to see if there was an effect. But Tylenol, and I can't stress this enough, Tylenol is highly toxic taken in large doses. People die every year from Tylenol overdoses. So it is absolutely not advised to use Tylenol. (laughs) We were studying a scientific phenomenon, but certainly people self-medicate with drugs and alcohol, uh, anxiety and depression, and and social uh, disconnection is one of the major causes of anxiety and depression. Clearly what comes out of this is this understanding of the physical need, the sheer physical need for connection. Talk a little bit about that and and its place in the hierarchy of of all of our needs. Sure. So, um, as you mentioned at the top of the segment, Maslow, uh, a famous psychologist long ago, described this hierarchy of needs. It's always shown as a pyramid. And on the bottom, you've got your physical needs like food, water, and shelter. And then you go up to social needs, social connection, love, esteem. And then at the very top, he put self-actualization. Um, and this seems intuitively right, but if you think about us as mammals, it actually turns out to be wrong because the first thing that any mammal needs when they're born is social connection or they die. Mammals, unlike, say, reptiles, are born incapable of getting themselves food, water, and shelter. So when you're an infant, the only way you can actually get those other needs satisfied is to have a caregiver who thinks it's a good idea to go towards the screaming, smelly baby instead of going away from the screaming, smelly baby. Uh, And so this was one of the fundamental problems that evolution had to solve for us mammals. All mammals have this issue, from the smallest little mouse 
up to us and and so on. So so this need is a fundamental need with a capital N. It's right up there with any other really fundamental need that uh, that we have. But I think we don't appreciate this. And our, our social lives kind of seem like a, a secondary thing and an extra part of our lives as opposed to something central and fundamental. What it sets us up for, though, is this hypersensitivity to fear of rejection. Yeah, absolutely. No, we are we are motivated a lot by fear of rejection, and this leads to, uh, I think you can see it in adolescence, uh, you know, this leads to great conformity among the adolescents themselves. So they might look like they're rejecting the adult standards at certain periods of time, but they are definitely embracing each other's norms of, you know, the other 7th, 8th, ninth graders and so on. And from an outside view, we tend to think, oh, well, conformity, you know, is, is a terrible thing. That's a bad way to be. But on the other hand, uh, in order for any organization or institution to function, you need people to get on the same page to try to work together. And this fear of rejection is part of what actually motivates us to stay connected and to be able to create things that would have never existed otherwise. We would not be sitting here talking on the radio over phones and using the Internet if it wasn't for people's desire to connect and be with one another uh, and then to sort of stay together and build those things. You know, Steve Jobs and, and Steve Wozniak, they started out as close buddies who liked to sit together and work at night together, and, and, uh, and that led to amazing things for the rest of us. Is there an inherent conflict between our social thinking, our emotional thinking on the one side, and our intellectual thinking on the other? And do they sometimes come in conflict as a result of the power of what we're talking about? Yeah, uh, so this is a sort of separate story uh, about the brain, but I I think that's uh, absolutely right. So we have this network in the brain that we use whenever we do pretty much any kind of analytical thinking. So if you're doing logical reasoning or even just holding a phone number in mind while you hunt for your phone, you're going to activate this one network, and there's a totally separate network that's involved when you're trying to think about other people, what's going on in their minds, what they're thinking and feeling, and so on. And these two networks are not only separate, but they actually seem to compete with one another. I I sometimes describe it as a neural seesaw, so that as one goes up, the activity in the other goes down. And I think this can make it a little bit difficult to uh, sort of simultaneously engage in analytical thought and social thought. And so I always think about a boss who's, you know, sitting at a team meeting and, you know, they're focusing in on the spreadsheets and whatever the other issues are, and because they're so focused on that, they're unlikely to see the social dynamics at work where there's, you know, two team members who are really having problems because they're not getting along well, and that's really what's behind what looks bad in the spreadsheet. It, it's the it's the people problem, and that gets missed because we value the, the analytical thinking, and our brain is designed to really only do one of these things well at a time. And you talk about that with respect to the value of social interaction in leadership. Sure, sure. Um, so, you know, th- this is a, a surprising set of findings uh, that I found when I was researching the book. It's, it's not my work, but there are these two surveys together that tell us something that, that's, uh, yeah, pretty uh, spectacular. The first finding is that if you uh, survey people about leaders, uh, you say, okay, what makes for a great leader? You can uh, survey folks and say, okay, well, if someone has really good analytical skills and they're focused on getting results, 
what's the chance that they'll be seen as a great leader? And it turns out that the chance they'll be seen as a great leader is about 15%, pretty small number. But if you take that exact same person and you add into the equation that they also have strong social skills, their chance of being seen as a great leader goes up to about 75%. And the reason for that is because uh, social skills are a multiplier. They allow us to sort of leverage each other's analytical abilities. If we're really socially connected, I can help manage my team to work together in the most complementary fashion and get the best out of everyone for the sort of team product. Um, now, the second survey actually looked at what percentage of leaders actually do score high on both the uh, sort of analytic results focus kind of thinking and then the having strong social skills. And this was where the really shocking thing came out. This was a survey of thousands of leaders and people's perceptions of them. Less than 1% were rated as being high in both qualities. Okay? And I think this speaks to a couple of things. I think it speaks to the fact that it's hard to be high in both qualities because the brain seems to trade off one for the other. But I think it also um, speaks to the fact that we, in our hiring decisions and promotion decisions, tend to value the analytic ability and, uh, and don't appreciate the importance that the, the social component is going to have. Sometimes in human resources, they say we hire people because of their analytical skills and we fire people because of their lack of social skills. And yet, then you have somebody, and you mentioned him before, somebody like Steve Jobs, whose analytical skills were, were off the charts, but whose social skills left an awful lot to be desired. Well, yeah, he, I mean, he's a really funny case, and, and I, I'm uh, you know, certainly fascinated with him, as many people are. And I think that um, certainly his social interpersonal skills left a lot to be desired, but his ability to sort of peer into the minds of the average person around him and really think deeply about what that person was going to value once he gave it to them was pretty unparalleled. So he, he certainly had a certain kind of social intelligence, but he did not have the everyday social interaction skills uh, that we generally think of when we think of social skill. And yet, in many ways, that ability to peer into the minds of others, as you talk about, comes in large measure from the social pain we talked about earlier, that in fact that kind of social pain breeds a certain amount of empathy. Yeah, sure. I, I mean, these are these are separate uh, systems in the brain, and and you know they evolved literally hundreds of millions of years apart. So so they're not you know really deeply intertwined. But but there's no question that um, distressing social experiences when you're young. Uh, can shape the extent to which you try hard to think about and understand what's going on with other people. Uh, when we are rejected, when there is distress, that motivates us to think about what are these other people thinking and feeling, and can I use any of that to fix this situation? So, you know, I don't like the, the pain of having my hand in the fire, so I pull it out. And I also don't like the pain of being rejected, so what can I do to fix that situation? And that's going to involve this kind of social mind reading uh, that we have this special capacity to do. Talk a little bit about the evolutionary roots of that capacity and, and why it has served us well and why it has stayed with us in such large proportion. Oh, I mean, I, I don't think you can overstate the importance of being able to think clearly about what other people are, are thinking and feeling. Anytime multiple people are going to try to function together, 
they need to be able to imagine other people's responses without getting explicit about everyone. And so evolutionarily, if you look across um, lots of different primates, different kinds of monkeys, apes, us, um, and you look at their brains, you look at the size of their brains uh, relative to the size of their bodies, uh, you see something very interesting. We would expect that the thing that would be most related to how big our brain is relative to other species is how smart we are, kind of how much IQ we have, how much we can solve analytical problems. And that's certainly relevant and related, but it turns out that the single best predictor of why our brain is bigger than the next species brain, which is bigger than the next species brain, has to do with the size of the groups we live in. So the larger your brain is, the larger the social groups that you can live in and manage. And this seems to be kind of the, the evolutionary driver of our brains getting larger is that the bigger the group we can manage to live in, the more advantage we can get out of living uh, in large groups. And if you think about solitary versus social at all, if you're a monkey all on your own and you've got to go get your own food, well, you, you, you could be sort of attacked by a predator while you're searching for food. But if there's multiple monkeys involved, well, some of them can be watching for predators and calling out signals when they see them, while others gather food for everyone, and you can start to do teamwork. And humans have done this better than you know, any other species that has ever existed. We have massive organizations that have teams within teams within various structures, and they don't work perfectly. I'm not trying to say that but they are a miraculous feat of nature that these can exist at all, that we can self-organize in that way. And a lot of that has to do with us understanding the minds of the other people on those teams and in the organization and knowing how to navigate that to produce sort of the best outcomes. And in a contemporary respect, you talk about this idea that, that social makes us more productive. It makes us able to learn better, and it makes us able to get more done, essentially. Yeah, um, I, I think that certainly feeling uh, socially connected and, uh, and uh, socially thriving at work is an important part of engaging at work. There's also this beautiful data uh, from Adam Grant, who's a, a business school professor at UPenn, uh, where he shows that if you can show employees the pro-social benefits of their work, if you can remind them of how their work is helping other people, their productivity goes up. And when you remind them how their work helps themselves selfishly, nothing happens to their productivity. So we tend to think of people as very selfishly motivated. But when you remind people of how what they do helps other people, they get more engaged. They work harder. Because as a surprise to ourselves, this is a basic fundamental motivation. We're built to care for others as well as for ourselves, and this makes us more engaged. And we see this play out in terms of the reaction people have, the emotional positive emotional reaction people have from charitable giving and doing philanthropic work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there's now a, a fair bit of data that speaks to this, and it's kind of surprising. So, you know, your brain has this reward system that responds to sort of all the most basic rewards, uh, eating a piece of chocolate, uh, seeing people that you find to be sexy and attractive. If you're using, if you're a drug user, seeing that, you know, drug uh, on a video screen, these all activate the brain's reward system, and it turns out that if I give you $10, your brain's reward system will activate a bit, but if you decide to give $10 to charity, that reward system will activate even more. 
So our brain's most primitive reward system seems to be tuned to enjoy and get greater pleasure out of giving than receiving. Um, and this was true. There was a study not long ago of kids under the age of two, and they videotaped their faces while they were either giving someone a toy or getting a toy from someone, and the kids' faces looked happier when they got to give to someone else and bring that person pleasure. So I think this is a really basic hardwired component of who we are. And the other aspect of that, the corollary of that, is what you talk about with respect to the value of, of social relationships versus economic value, and that oftentimes they balance up against each other. Yeah, so we make choices every day uh, on you know, how much more time we're going to devote to work, or am I going to take that job in a different city where I don't know anyone, but there's better financial opportunities for me. And all of this depends on our theory of how happy more money will make us versus how happy these social bonds that we are weakening or severing will make us. And the data is really, really clear on this. So social connection uh, is, a, is a really important contributor to our happiness and well-being and also to our longevity. Being socially connected is as good for your health as quitting smoking. Um, and on the other hand, if you're not uh, below the poverty line, and things are very different below the poverty line, but if you're middle class or upper class, uh, making more money is not going to make you happier in the vast majority of cases. And despite this, over the past 50 years, we have come to value the pursuit of wealth more and more and more in this country. So we as a country are making choices increasingly to say, I'm willing to sever or reduce those social bonds to make more money, but it's a bad decision. It's a really bad decision because uh, it actually goes against what all the data says ultimately uh, brings us more happiness. Does social networking and technology and the ways we're able to connect today in some ways mitigate against that because we can be far-flung and still be connected? I, I think that's true to an extent. I mean, there's no question. I, I live 3,000 miles from a lot of my family, and Facebook uh, allows you know my parents to see what my son is doing. And, and I think that that certainly is a huge positive relative to not having uh, you know the in-person connection all the time. I don't think it replaces it. I, I think that there is something about being in the same space with people uh, that is uh, important. It's you know certainly what we were evolved for because there was no thing such thing as the Wi-Fi or even the telephone as all this evolution was going on. Um, but I do think it's it's absolutely a positive in that regard in helping people stay connected. Matthew Lieberman, his book is Social: Why Our Brains Are Wired to Connect. Matthew, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Uh, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.